How's it going? Welcome back to Price of the Cure. We're continuing through Nicaea, and today we're going to be covering two clauses, and this episode may be more brief. I don't know. I usually get that prediction wrong, and so there's that. Uh, But we're going to be covering two clauses today, and it'll be less robust than usual because of our familiarity with both of these lines. Um, We will talk a little bit about Mary and brief, but not too much, and I'll tell you why whenever we get there. But we're covering the lines for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Um, On that second line, I was tempted to start going into the Holy Spirit, but I I wanted to keep uh, that discussion for the section on the Holy Spirit. So, So I refrained from that. And we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So, for the first clause, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. This is probably one of the easiest ones for us, but it has historical significance, and so we're going we're gonna to talk about that. So, this really targeted the Gnostics in particular, uh, because within the Gnostic teachings, there was this great divine, right? who was so transcendent from the material world, which was corruption, that salvation was reduced to returning souls from the material world to this great transcendent being, to be reassimilated or reabsorbed into this being of the Supreme. Christians, however, denied this version of transcendence that bordered on deism, really, because this being became impersonal. He, he didn't interact with the material world. Um, but instead, they stated that God, out of compassion for his creatures, moved to redeem his creatures. And not only that, but the same deity created the material world and would send his son into the material world for our sake. Um, and really, a lot of this clause um, is framed by what we've discussed before about the sun and the eternality of the sun and the generation of the sun, right? So Gerald Bray argues that this clause, quote, and for our salvation is a means of addressing an Arian issue, namely, what did salvation entail? So Arians viewed Jesus as the chief angelic power who was to merely serve as an example of proper teaching and behavior for human salvation. After affirming the full deity of the Son, Christians claim that it is not only this creator who enters into the material world, uh, contradictory to the Gnostics, but this is not merely an example, but to bring about life for the human race, quote, which had lost the integral energy of life and immortality that had originally been given to it by the very Logos who made humankind. And that's Gerald Bray. So this would move and connect to the early church's doctrine of theosis or deification. We've talked about that before, but I have to say this every time in case you're just now jumping into this episode. This is different from 
Mormon ideology and little God theology. In fact, I actually have a post-Nicaea episode on deification where we'll talk about Christian thought and deification more and compare it with at least little God theology. I don't know if I'm going to go into LDS stuff. Um, Moving on. So when we read that the sun came down from heaven, we find this reaffirmation of Jesus's words in the Gospels. Really straightforward, right? I was sent from the Father for these purposes. And you see this especially with John, right? In John's Gospel, this is just rampant. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. And he makes these parallels clear as day that indicate that he was sent for salvation from the Father. And Bray is helpful here as well. He notes that in Christian thought, there's an emphasis on the words coming down and his ascension. There's the exaltation and the return to transcendent glory. So this notion of coming down carried this weight of a great theophany. Um, And a theophany is uh, where God is manifest in some way, right? Such as the burning bush. The burning bush is a theophany. You see the great I am in the burning bush. And so that's one example of a theophany. And so the the descent of the Logos into the world is a great theophany, but this has significant weight because it is the Son who perfectly reveals the Father beyond all measure compared to that revelation which came before. And that kind of ties back into Hebrews 1 and John 1.18, right? And so another point to bring up on this is that there is a very clear order that it is God who moves first towards men. He descends down to man rather than man ascending up to the throne of God. Man will ascend up to the throne of God in glorification, but that's only because first God descended to man. So there's this aspect of God's grace always comes before. And then one more comment on this particular clause is that the confession of Jesus coming down from heaven echoes realities mentioned so far, right? It was the heavenly son who is the creator who comes into creation in a material body. And this completely just says, no, Gnostic teachings are just out of here. But there's also a nuance that occurred prior to this point that would um, present this distinction between the heavenly and earthly sun. And so this kind of fixed that, so to speak. So we're going to do something different for the biblical support here. We're going to just proof text. And the reason being is because this is really the most familiar theological points, I think, almost in the whole creed. Um, because we know, like First Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we obtain salvation? By Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, Neither is salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 2 Timothy 3.15, I must have pulled from the King James Version. I don't know. I don't know what compelled me to do that. Anyway, um, 2 Timothy 3.15, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Can't do that. (laughs) That's honestly one of the reasons why I can't read the King James on a regular basis, because I, I hear it all as Englishmen, which makes sense as King James. But hearing Jesus as, you know, 17th century Englishman is kind of strange. Anyway, John 
651 says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And he compares this with the manna in the wilderness. So we know that this text, and that's really where the historical context becomes particularly interesting. You're like, this, this is such a basic truth for us. We know that Jesus came for us and for our salvation from heaven. And even if you're not Christian, you're, you're a Jehovah's Witness, Aryan, Mormon, uh, Unitarian, whatever you want to call it, even if you're not a Christian, you can affirm this line because it's it's just very straightforward. And so you have this, um, that's really where the context of the clause before becomes crucial and where the historical context against Gnostic teachings is crucial. Gnostic teachings really, as a whole, isn't present in our, you know, contemporary setting. Uh, there are overlaps. There are some who believe that the material world, like our literal flesh, is bad. But they wouldn't take it so far to say that Jesus can never come in the flesh because of that, right? Um, and there's obviously parallels with this false dichotomy that we talked about in episode 8 or 9 of the series with... Uh, there's this distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as if they were different. So there are parallels, but ultimately this particular line and, and how it um, sits in our context is very different than how it would sit in those contexts where Gnostic teachings were around. Um, it was a clear line in the sand, basically. So let's move on to the next line, uh, which is, By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now, I was tempted to break this one up into different parts, and like I said, go more into the Holy Spirit, but I decided not to. I decided to just hold off on that impulse, and so we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in more depth whenever we get to the clause on the Holy Spirit. But for historical context, I did break it up a little bit, but it's still going to be one section in this particular episode. So, this creed introduces the Holy Spirit and his role in the narrative of redemption in relation to Jesus. And you could talk about that for days. Um that discussion of how Jesus and the Holy Spirit work within his earthly ministry is quite large. Honestly, we may have to do a whole episode on that at some point. A um, lot of discussions about that. Um, but ultimately, it is through him, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. This notion that a spirit is interacting with the flesh or material world would have also been devastating to the Gnostic thinkers because they viewed the realm of the spirit as being diametrically opposed to the flesh or opposite of the flesh. Maybe opposite would be the better term there. Um, so not only does the Holy Spirit work in the conception of Christ, but in the text of Luke, there's actually this parallel with creation that can be overlooked. So in Genesis 1-2, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the, the waters before a lot of the big creative acts occur, right? And in Luke chapter 1, whenever it's talking about the conception of Jesus, it says the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so this picture is another instance where recreation or renewal is, is happening. This is a type of creative event from God. So I see it like this. The way that John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1 parallel for Jesus as the agent of creation, this conception of Jesus parallels Genesis 1-1 as well. And so there's this Trinitarian work of initial creation and recreation. And you kind of see that too whenever you start getting into other parallels like with the flood and recreation, the new heavens and new earth and how they are cleansed and how they come about. That's a little bit beside the point. But the 
point being here is that whenever we look at this, we are given theological revelation of who the Holy Spirit is. That also parallels God's work to restore Eden, if you will, right? Uh, and especially because there's this there's this picture of Eden that is a picture of a temple, a holy place where you know there's life and abundance, and so there's this restoration. It's really cool, um, but again, that's a little bit beside the point. So historically, and even today, we rightly associate the Holy Spirit as a means of sanctification, uh, the the making of something holy, the restoration of holiness, and so it's through the Son that the gift of the Spirit comes to believers. And the Holy Spirit renews, restores, recreates, and redemption, he regenerates, right? And so you see that picture becoming more focused here. So in the line, he became incarnate, which is another way of saying enfleshed, it comes from, uh, incarnate comes from the Latin text of John 1, 14, and it means like literally taking flesh. So he became incarnate or enfleshed, and this is a reality that we're all familiar with, especially from texts like John 1.14, right? And there's this parallel in this clause that he was incarnate and was made man. And so we've discussed up to this point that the incarnation became a crucial point for the early writers, especially against Gnostic teachings and especially uh, for Athanasius, who would pin the work called on the incarnation. And a lot of people think that this uh, work focuses on the birth of Christ, but he speaks to the incarnation as its ramifications in the birth, ministry, and resurrection of Jesus. But the point that's really stressed in this work is that the enfleshment of the Logos was necessary so that by adding to himself a human nature, we could partake in the divine nature and move from death to incorruptibility. And that, again, is that connotation of theosis. So, this parallel section, he was made man, would appropriately recognize the humanity of Jesus in full against those heresies that would minimize the humanity of Christ. And then, with this said, the hypostatic union, uh, the two natures in one person, this dynamic would later on be fleshed out in Chalcedon. Uh, and that's beyond our scope here. So Chalcedon would really um, fine-tune how we understand the person of Christ in himself. Uh, so to speak, because these controversies were more like establishing he is the eternal son who became incarnate. And then how the incarnation works is really what the debate over Chalcedon centered around between uh, these exaggerations of what, man, I'll tell you what, Nestorius really got the short end of the stick. Nestorius was horribly represented. Now, what Chalcedon condemned, Nestorianism, that there was two persons, essentially, in Christ, is valid. But Nestorius doesn't seem to have actually taught that. It's kind of just politics and personal vendettas. And gracious, it's crazy that some things never change. Let's just say that. Maybe we'll go into Chalcedon later on. There's, there's interesting discussions there about uh, the hypostatic union, but that stuff was flushed out after the fact. Here, the main point was that the eternal, uh, eternally begotten Son came down from heaven and became enfleshed. So, this creed also affirmed the virgin birth, and it has the same significance as the incarnation in terms of how it would deal with Gnostic teachings. But there's this dynamic here that can be missed between 
the divine Holy Spirit and the human virgin Mary, right? They're placed next to each other. So this highlights that what will come of this activity of the Holy Spirit and the human virgin Mary is the God-man. Furthermore, this also demonstrates that God intervenes into history and he will bring about the promises that were given to Jacob through the line of David, right? Um, So we can sit here a bit because I know most will find it interesting. We're going to sit on uh, who Mary is. Now, this can be brief, may not be satisfactory, but you'll find it interesting, hopefully. Historically, Mary had uh, the devotion of early Christians as the mother of God, or the title Theotokos, depending on which Greek pronunciation you pick. My Erasmian training drives me. Try to change it to different ones, but I it's a lot of work to do that, so I haven't done it. Anyway, um, so the term was the title for Mary. In fact, this uh, title would be of major contingent for Nestorius. Uh, the title was meant to emphasize the deity of Christ. Nestorius had problems with it because it, for him, it seemed to imply that Mary gave birth to um, the deity of Christ uh, instead of emphasizing the humanity of Christ. So he preferred the title of Christ bearer. But again, that's a fifth century issue. So I really just need to hold back and stay focused. I can do this. But really one note that needs to be said here is that we need to be careful about when we start saying things like, um, whenever we start making the two natures of Christ almost persons, and I think we all do it, um, but we have to realize that there's one person subsisting in two natures. And so whenever Jesus was crucified, you could say God was crucified because it's the person, God the Son, being crucified, even though... The, the suffering and pain is according to his human nature. And some people even say that that right there is going too far. I don't know how, I don't know how you can make sense. The incarnation is a hard topic. And so some people will say, well, you know what? God, the son died on the cross, throw our hands up, call it mystery. It's the safest bet. And there's, there's, there's a valid point to that. Um, at the same time, we in the West, at least tend to be more, like, we want to answer these questions like, how did God the Son grow in wisdom according to his human nature? And there are discussions like that in the early church, but uh, there's, there's much to do about not going into Nestorianism, that Christ was two persons. And then sometimes we will be talking about Christology and someone will say something, well, Jesus on earth operated within his human limitations. And we'll say that's Nestorianism because it's making this dichotomy between Uh, the two natures, as if they were persons, and good gravy. We'll have to talk about Chalcedon down the road. Ultimately, ultimately, defining person, defining nature, realizing that natures don't act apart from persons, and that there's one person in Christ subsisting the two natures is is key. Let's go back to Mary. Um, So Mary was heavily linked to the Incarnation. They go hand in hand. Um, And the Incarnation of Mary was used against heresies, in a variety of contexts. Now, for early Christians, Mary signified a new Eve and was often contrasted with Eve's failure. So Eve failed, Mary succeeded. Eve was disobedient and brought the fall, and Mary was obedient and brought the son 
and thus redemption. Um, so Ignatius of Antioch is actually the first to have mentioned Marian doctrines, beginning with uh, the double generation of the Son. One was from eternity from God, the Father, and the other was from Mary on earth. And arguing against early docetists who denied the humanity of Jesus, he states that Christ was conceived in the womb of Mary through the work of the Holy Spirit according to the salvific plan of God, and that's in Ephesians 18 of his work, not Ephesians 18 of our Bibles, because Ephesians 18 of our Bibles doesn't exist. And then you have Justin Martyr uh, placing an emphasis on the virginity of Mary before Jesus' birth over and against the opposition who rejected it as myth. Uh, He parallels Eve with Mary also in his dialogue and demonstrates that Mary is important to the story of salvation with her ethical figure primarily at the forefront. She was ethically, um, you know, outstanding, so to speak. Irenaeus would also play a role in Marian doctrines, probably probably the most significant. He moves her front and center of incarnational soteriology and recapitulation. We talked about that before. I can't remember which episode. Uh, but he, too, contrasts Eve from Mary. Uh, so you have the one who is disobedient and the one who is obedient. Eve tied this knot of disobedience and Mary untied the knot of disobedience to obedience. Uh, And so he stresses the prophecy of the virgin birth and puts that great weight of this birth serves as a sign of salvation. And so it's fundamental and necessary uh, prophetically and, and of course, in redemption. Now in the fifth century is when a lot of the, the higher elevations of Mary start coming about. Uh, such as perpetual virginity, assumption, immunity. Uh, But those, again, go beyond our discussion. We're not going into that. So at this point, we have Mary as the mother of God. The virgin birth was significant. Mary is a parallel of Eve or contrasted with Eve. She is the new Eve, and she is uh, receiving a place of devotion. And you know what's interesting is that whenever I was doing an article for a client on Fiverr, it was on... um, Jesus being allegedly a copycat of Egyptian gods. I can't remember which one I wrote on. But what I learned was that with the Isis cult, there's a great emphasis on Isis and her child. And in in Egypt, that devotion to Isis and her child moved over to devotion of Mary and, of course, her child. And so you'll see very similar depictions of Isis and her child and Mary and Jesus. And it's just quite interesting. I haven't gone too far into that. My focus on that client's paper was on a different deity, but it's just an interesting observation. I picked up in passing on the way there. So let's go into the biblical sport, uh, which is also straightforward uh, because of our familiarity, especially since we are very familiar with the narrative of the conception, incarnation and birth of Christ. We all know John one. We all know the, conception narrative of John the Baptist leaping in the womb, and we especially know the birth narrative, if nothing else, the version that is culturally accepted and most likely wildly incorrect. Um, because we, we've talked about the birth of Christ quite a bit, and so that's, that's that. So the biblical support is, again, pretty straightforward. You know, you look at Luke 1, 26-38, uh, you look at um, other texts and say uh, the epistles or First John, 
where the incarnation is of such importance that anyone who denies that Jesus took on flesh is an antichrist. And of course, this actually has to do with um, presupposing that it is the eternal son who takes on flesh. First John is very heavy against those who would deny the deity of Christ, um, as well as those who would deny the incarnation, whenever you start boiling down what John is saying. Um, let me find some notes here. Uh, John's gospel in his prologue focuses on, again, the pre-existent Christ and the incarnation of Jesus in John 1.14. Uh, the birth of Christ is the realization of the eternal Son of God taking on human nature. Uh, this is a miracle beyond others, but it's also the beginning of the kingdom coming. Um, it is the fulfillment of the law, the reconciliation of sinners. It's a pivotal shift in the history of redemption. Now, what we often miss is that the whole work of God in redemption is crucial. And whenever it comes to Jesus and his earthly ministry, his work began at the incarnation. We don't usually think of it that way, but, but we should because you have the Trinity inseparably determining that the Son will come take on flesh by the conception of the Holy Spirit according to the Father. Uh, and that's profound, really. And whenever you start looking at the Incarnation and Paul's writings in particular, you start seeing this, this picture being painted um, of the magnificence of the Incarnation um, and this necessity. You see Galatians 4, 1 through 7, where... Paul states that when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born underneath the law, in order to redeem those under the law so that we may receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, calling out, Abba, Father, thus you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then also an heir through God. Um, the first phrase of significance is the fullness of time. This, this is a precise moment in human history where God would send Jesus into the world um, by his providence and wisdom. Uh, and then you have this fullness of time where it is in this particular moment where God's means of redemption begins with the incarnation. It's God sending forth his son. And this is a pivotal moment of history in terms of prophecy, in terms of um, what this implication means as, again, that idea of the renewal of creation uh, and in terms of what that means of recreation, if you want to put it that way. So God sending Jesus coincides with the birth from the Virgin Mary. This fullness of time emphasizes that the birth of the incarnate son is the first step of the great gift of redemption to humanity. And this is really um, profound too, whenever we get to texts like Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I've talked about Philippians a lot because it was my focus in my master's program, but ultimately what we see is this picture of the divine, glorious son stripping himself of his glory, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, being found living as man, being humiliated by himself by becoming obedient to the point of death for our salvation, but it begins with the incarnation. It begins with stripping himself of his glory and taking the form of a slave, that is, being born in the likeness of men. 
So the incarnation is important. And most of us know that, and that's what makes this episode both easy and difficult. It makes it easy because we know the biblical support off the top of our heads for the most part. It makes it difficult because we often forget the significance of the incarnation as it pertains to us and our redemption. We, we often focus on the cross only. We, we do focus on the act of obedience, but we tend to focus on the passive obedience of Christ uh, when it is all of Christ's life that is significant for our redemption, beginning with the incarnation. And then even here, the, the tendency to overlook the role of the Holy Spirit um, hovering over or overshadowing Mary as he did in Genesis 1 with creation, that's significant as well. So I think that's where we're going to wrap up this episode. I, I got to tell y'all, I am so sorry about how much whiplash I probably gave y'all in this episode. Um, this, this episode is a revelation of where I'm kind of at mentally. I'm scattered-brained. Um, I feel I feel ill-prepared. Um, there's a lot of things I want to talk about, but but I can't yet because I'm still prepping a bunch of things. Um, and my dog is 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 downstairs. He just had surgery, and I've been having to just like stay downstairs and watch him. So right now I'm wondering if like he's doing things he's not supposed to be doing on that leg. So that's all in my mind. Um, just a bunch of random stuff. Really, just lack of organization for me. Uh, mentally and that reflects in the podcast and so hopefully this episode was good uh, to say the least of course by the time y'all hear it I should be over well I don't know and this dog is gonna be down for like eight weeks and it's been one or two weeks now I don't know a lot of weird stuff so that all said I hope this episode proves helpful uh, we're gonna keep pushing through um, a lot of it will be much simpler than eternal generation until we get to the Holy Spirit because we'll likely go into procession because a lot of people are curious about that. I've gotten emails about procession and so I don't think I can avoid that and I think the filioque will inevitably become a point of discussion even though that was post 381. Um, I don't know. I'm still debating whether or not I'm going to go that far. I'm trying to really keep it within the context of 381. That all said, guys, uh, this show is subscriber-supported. I would love to do this full-time for y'all, put out free PDFs, articles, podcasts, materials. Uh, these materials are used by congregations and pastors internationally. Uh, and that just... Uh, I would never have thought that this would be the case. Um, but if you find that Christ the Cure has been a value and you value what I'm doing over here, consider becoming a subscriber, a patron um, for as little as $1 a month. Uh, with enough people, $1 a month becomes significant. And so that support would be great as I would like to do more. I really enjoy the work and that's that. So God bless you all. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, have a good one.